0: All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today as we continue our study of the Acts of the Apostles. We ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to what you are saying to each of us individually through Holy Scripture and through the sharing of Scripture and our understanding of it. So give us the courage and the strength to set aside preconceived notions and be willing to open up our minds and hearts to what you have to say. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. We want to welcome a few new people here, and uh, of course always welcome to all of you. Um, what I'd like to do this morning is to do just a brief, uh, review of how far we've come because beginning with next week's lesson, we'll start getting into some very, what I think is very interesting uh, portions of this book. Uh, up until now, we've had primarily the beginning of the book with the ascension uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven which was sort of the ending event of his role in God's plan of salvation. Now, when I say the ending, I don't mean that, you know, he could sit up there in heaven and sit back and do nothing. Uh, remember, there's only one God, and they are all interactive at all times. But each one has his own role In this long, long period of salvation history, which extends throughout time, from the beginning of creation until the end of creation. So God is always active in our lives, uh, sometimes personally, sometimes in a communal way, uh, and sometimes just by inspiration of things that we would like to do or not. And so what we've come now is the life, death, and resurrection has come to an end, at least in a visible form on this earth. But Christ always has told us throughout Scripture that he will never leave us entirely. And so that, is now become, or that has now become the role of the Holy, Script, or the Holy Spirit of taking up the time and the activities of the Father in the Old Testament and the Son as far as he has come through his life, death, resurrection, and the ascension. And now the Holy Spirit continues the guidance of each and every one of us who are committed to Christ and collectively through the church. So that's as far as we've come so far. And then there's been a few incidents, uh, the major one, of course, being Pentecost. Ten days after the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, uh, as he promised, the Holy Spirit descended upon the church uh, in the form of the apostles and those who were waiting for him in the upper room uh the scriptures say that there was approximately a 120 people well uh that is perhaps not an exact figure 120 in an upper room at that particular time would have been quite a large number of people uh the numbers you got to be careful of numbers in the bible that is throughout scripture numbers um, are more symbolic than factual okay? so you can't really say this is exactly the number of people that were there. let me take you through uh, let me take you through a little bit of explanation about numbers in scripture. first of all in the Jewish culture, there were three sacred numbers, the number three, the number seven, and the number 12. These were all sacred numbers, all right? Number seven, particularly, meant complete. Number 12 usually was referring to infinity or a multitude, okay? And we sort of use that symbol to indicate infinity. Three had a lesser meaning at the time. Of course, we now associate three with the trinity, all right? But three was not exactly identifiable in many ways, although so many things within the Bible were grouped in threes. When they wanted to expand on this idea of infinity, they would add a zero. All right? And that's where the 120 comes from. All right? So you can't say that that's an exact figure. But it is a figure that is meaningful to these people at this particular time. Let me give you another one that you've probably heard of many, many times. The number 40. That is not a sacred number. That is a convenience number. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and even New Testament, you'll see the number 40 used. You know, uh, the proverbial 40 days and 40 nights of the rain uh, during the time of uh, Noah. And then uh, Moses tended sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro, for 40 years. And then he reigned for 40 years. Or, or rather, he um, ruled, you might say, the Jewish people while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. Okay. And then you have all these numbers of 40. Because they had no calendar in the sense of the calendars that we use today, 40 was often used as a number to signify a long but imprecise period of time. It was a convenience number because they had no way to right down. For example, Noah, when he and his family and all these animals were in the ark and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, would they start on Monday or Tuesday and then end up, you know, on Thursday or Friday of the next week? We don't know. And what difference does it really make? So they would say 40. And that was to indicate an imprecise period of time. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus went out to the desert right after being baptized, and he was in sort of a retreat for 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking, did he take a calendar and say, I don't know, I only got 29 more, only got 28 more, and I'm so hungry? No, 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 no. It was an imprecise period of time, okay? Even us in today's, we have the 40 hours devotion, all right? Don't take that, you know, by your clock, exactly 40 hours, all right? Lent is supposed to be a period of 40 days. It isn't exactly, as you all know, all right? So you got to be a little careful in reading the Bible when it talks about numbers. Sometimes when they wanted to uh really get your attention, they would say Methuselah, for example, lives six hundred and sixty years. No, 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 no. You know, God is not going to do that kind of thing to anybody. Can you imagine Methuselah? You know (laughs) No, no, no. I don't think so. All right. So you've got to be a little careful on that. All right, but getting back to where we are. Ten days and ten days was something that was fairly excuse me, Chet. Yeah. No. No. Those were not accurate numbers. So yes. but it like Nine belongs in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 sorry, not, no, no, no. No, reason. no reason to. No, can you? Yeah. I can't connect anything yeah. or remember yeah. anything yeah. in the Bible that was connected yeah. to nine. Yeah, seems strange. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's right. Well, we do have nine-day novenas, you know. That's yeah. the word comes. The word novena comes from the Latin for nine. Yes. Okay. All right. No, no, nine doesn't have any any great meaning. All right. Yeah. So, after the resurrection and the ascension, then approximately ten days later, uh, was the Feast of Pentecost. Now, this was a Jewish feast, and it was ten days after uh, Passover, all right? And that, of course, is when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and upon the church. What is important about that is, of course, the Holy Spirit was promised by God the Father in sort of uh, hidden ways, you might say, uh, but he was promised by Jesus Christ as the follow-on to his, his, meaning Christ's role in God's plan of salvation, mm-hmm. But you've got to remember, the Holy Spirit was not released to mankind until Pentecost. Therefore, prior to Christ's death and resurrection and the first Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not available to individuals. And the graces and benefits of the Holy Spirit was not available also. And that is one of the reasons that evil was so prevalent throughout the latter part of Old Testament history. from the time <clears throat> from the time of Solomon's son, right up through the Babylonian captivity, it just uh, increased exponentially. during the Babylonian captivity, which lasted for approximately fifty years, although the Bible says seventy, We know differently from other external sources that it was approximately 50 years. Um, They finally got the message as to why they were there in the first place. And they had the book of Deuteronomy, which they called the book of the law. And they finally decided, well, they were going to change their ways. and They were going to be obedient to the law. Well, they took that to extremes. And so after they returned from Babylon to Israel, they concentrated on following the laws. But over a period of time, they concentrated so much that they forgot God and they started worshiping laws. And we'll see some of that uh, in today's lessons when we get into the latter part of Peter's uh, speech. okay. So that's where we are now. We've seen now how the apostles went out and began preaching, particularly Peter and John, and established small house communities they were not separating themselves from the Jewish people at this point in time. That came later. What they were doing was being faithful Jewish people and uh, uh, adhering to all of the Jewish laws, but in their own homes they were going through the what they called at that time the breaking of the bread ceremony in addition to being faithful Jews. The separation did not come until much later, and we'll get into some of that in today's lesson. Okay. So that's where we are now. Uh, I want to go through the latter part of Peter's um speech. Mm. Let's go back to page uh, 21 in the book here. There are some rather interesting uh, points here and then I'm going to uh, skip over to the second part of Peter's speech which is sort of divided in two parts partly because of the interruption that came. Now, the interruption really is a literary device that Paul uses. The book of Acts probably has more speeches, quote unquote, than any of the other books of the uh, New Testament. But because some of them are long, uh, it's human nature to get a little weary of reading what so-and-so said. And so what Paul, uh, rather Luke, has done in writing this as, interrupted, you might say, the speech with a few outside uh, comments uh, such as the communal life on page 22 and uh, a description of the breaking of the bread and then the cure of the uh, uh, crippled uh, beggar and that kind of thing. Okay. But in 21 I want to talk a little bit about this. He says, my brothers, one can confidently say that, uh, say to you about the patriarch David. Now remember, the Jewish people practically worshipped David who was the symbol <laughs> <laughs> pardon me, who was the symbol of their freedom and their independence and he was also the symbol of their identity up until the time that David united all of the tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Jacob, or 12 sons of Jacob, whatever you want to call it, uh, into a united nation. I don't mean united nations like we have in New York City, but uh, a group that was identified as a nation among other nations. That was one of their primary goals to be identified in the same way that other nations were identified with a king. If you read uh, the first book of Samuel, see the reasons behind the anointing of uh, Saul first and then King David. All right. But David was the epitome of the kind of leader that they wanted. In fact, even uh, a thousand years later when they were thinking about the Messiah. Their idea of a Messiah was somebody like David who would free them from the rule of the Romans and restore them to an economic and political power. It's not what God had in mind, all right? And that's what this is all about here. <clears throat> By brothers, one can confidently say that you know about the patriarch David, that he died and was buried and his tomb is in our midst to to this day. But since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set upon his uh, descendants upon his throne, that is God made a covenant with David, not the same divine covenant that he made with Abraham, although it was all inclusive That there would always be a ruler, a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. Well, that was interrupted with the Babylonian captivity and it was not really continued. This was more of a symbolic kind of uh, promise rather than an actual or political promise. says says, um, he foresaw, that is, David foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that neither was he abandoned to the netherworld, nor did his flesh see corruption. That is, the Messiah would not see corruption or be abandoned to the netherworld. Not David. David was buried, and in fact, the tomb of David was finally lost. It says, God raised Jesus, and of this we are witnesses. Exalted at the right hand of God, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured it forth, as you both see and hear. For David did not go up into heaven, but he himself said, that is, the, the Father said, the Lord is my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Oh God bless you. That is a quotation out of Matthew as well. And therefore, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Uh, If you read chapter, or page 21 here, And the explanation, it's rather important and it has a significance that carries throughout. Let's go down to the very bottom here, the last two lines on that page. Luke Luke clearly means it to portray that Christian, the Christian uh, community of Jerusalem as the restored Israel. Gotta explain a little bit about that because it, it is not really clear in this book as to what it's meant. As I've said in the last couple of meetings, the purpose that God established the Jewish community was to take his message of divine love and salvation and spread it not only among themselves, but to all the nations. They were to be the light to the nations. Unfortunately, they misunderstood, or they deliberately uh, did not want to do that, and they became a very exclusive community, and they sort of developed themselves in in the line of pride, you might say, and did not want to go out and spread the good news to other nations. And so over a period of time, um, God was very angry with the Jewish people and destroyed, for example, their temple and their city in the 6th century by the hand of the Babylonians and then eventually destroyed it uh, again in 70 AD by the hands of the Romans. And this was a sign of his final uh, dealings, you, you might say, with the Jewish people as a covenant community and turned it over then to those people who followed the teachings of Christ. So the restoration of Israel was never intended to be a political or economic restoration of a nation that once was such. All right. The whole idea of the church now being the chosen people to take the message of Christ to all the nations. Uh, for for the, those who were at uh, last Saturday's mass, the priest made a very um, strong reference to going out and preaching the good news to everybody. How many of you were at Saturday's mass here at Saint Rose? Did you catch that message? The idea of reaching out to all mankind. In other words, Christianity is not an exclusive community. It is inclusive, meaning bringing everybody in. I'm, the second part of Peter's speech begins on 23, page 23, that is. It says, when Peter saw this, and that is the cripple who was Uh, healed recently Um, he addressed the people you Israelites why are you amazed at this and why do you look so intently uh, at us as if we made him walk by our own power or piety the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob uh, not three gods but these are the three patriarchs and they are always um, sort of referred to together because they are the foundation of the Israelite or Jewish nation. The God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in Pilate's presence, when he had decided to release him, when Pilate, that is, had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and the Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you, the author of life, for you put to death the author of life, whom you put to death. But God raised him from the dead. Down at the bottom, there's a reference to that. At the says, um, this is a prophetic uh, description of, the, again, the restoration of Israel. Now understood as as fulfilled in the Jerusalem Messianic community. <clears throat> of this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, this man whom you see and know, uh, his name, has made strong. And the faith that comes through it has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. This is referring again to the cripple who was just um, healed. And now I know, brothers, that you acted out of ignorance just as your leaders did. But God has thus brought to fulfillment what he has announced beforehand through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be wiped away, and that the Lord may grant you times of refreshment and send you the Messiah already appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the times of universal restoration, of which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. For Moses said, and this is the point I'm really trying to get to, a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kinsmen. <coughs> Excuse me. To him you shall listen in all that he may say to you. Everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be cut off from the people. Now that's a quotation uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18. Remember I said uh, a couple of weeks ago when we first talked that all of the books of the Old Testament report point to in some way or other not necessarily by name but point to the event of Jesus Christ and his role in God's plan of salvation this is the first of those very uh, definite points a prophet like me all right. remember Moses was the appointed leader of the Jewish people Uh, who led them out of slavery from Egypt. And when we get to the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, there is a definite comparison of Jesus to Moses. Moses led the people out of physical slavery. Jesus led the people out of spiritual slavery. Okay, to sin. So there's a definite comparison. Back and forth. Back and forth. In the Gospel of Matthew. It says, Moreover, all of the prophets who spoke from Samuel to those afterwards also announced these days. That is, the last days. You are the children of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your ancestors when he said to Abraham, in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Now, the Sanhedrin gets a little involved here. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruler, and is often compared to our um, Supreme Court, you might say. The Sanhedrin really was a little more than that. It was all of the Jewish rulers which encompassed uh, all of the, the temple rulers. And that can, can be compared to somewhat of our Congress, you might say. Our Congress today is made up of two primary uh, parties, but there are uh, a small number of other parties involved also. Okay? You have the Liberation Party and the, well, the Tea Party is actually part of the Republicans, but nevertheless, there's a group of, of independents, you might say. The Sanhedrin was primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it also had four other groups, uh, the Indomians, the uh, Zealots, uh the Herodians, and I forget all of them, but uh, that's what we're talking about here. Let's go over to um, page 27. Paul is, or rather Peter, is picking up where he left off, you might say, the day before of this long speech, and what Luke is doing in the Acts of the Apostles really is using the framework of a speech by St. Peter to frame what he's going to be bringing up in more detail later on in this book. It's like putting, um, setting the scene, you might say. Okay. <laughs> Uh, This is, again, the second day, and it's like a continuation, part two, you might say, of Peter's speech. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answered them, leaders of people and elders. If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a cripple yesterday, namely by what means he was saved, then all of you and all of the people of Israel should know that it was in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. In his name, and this man stands before you healed. He is the stone rejected by you, the builders. I want to stop here for a moment. This quotation here, just like uh, somewhat like the previous one about the prophet like Moses, but this one here is a quotation directly out of Psalm 118. The reason I want to sort of discuss this briefly is that in this particular culture people did not have newspapers and magazines and so forth and the radio and the television and all the, the uh, smartphones, etc. All they had really of importance was Holy Scripture. Okay? And the educated people knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, at least in memory. Maybe not in heart, but at least in memory. And so, in the Bible, you will see portions of the scriptures from the past being used to emphasize certain points. And when that happened, such as in this point right here, the people understood where that came from and the whole gist of that particular psalm or portion of uh, the scripture, okay. <coughs> Psalm 118, is one of the great psalms of thanksgiving. I'm not going to read it all because it's a little on on the long side. I want to read just some of it here. It says, A hymn of thanksgiving to the Savior of Israel. You know, each of the psalms has somewhat of a title. It says, Give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Israel say, His mercy endures forever. And it goes on and on and on. then at verse uh, well let's say at verse 21 Psalm 18 verse 21 it says I will give thanks to you O Lord for you have answered me and have been my savior quote unquote the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone by the Lord this has been done and it is wonderful in our eyes here is another a uh, portion of scripture that points to the concept of the Messiah. And Jesus has fulfilled that because Jesus is the cornerstone of our church. Alright? Uh, now when, when it says cornerstone, this is a symbolic phrase. It doesn't mean brick and mortar. Okay. He, Jesus, and I'm reading from this page here, is the cornerstone rejected by you, the builders. The builders are the Jewish nation. Jesus and the whole concept of the Messiah was rejected. There is no salvation through anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven given to the human race by which we are to be saved. All right, which means that only through Jesus Christ, for people who are educated and understand, there is no other means by which we can be saved except through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is some exclusions or exceptions, you might say for people who never heard of Jesus Christ, who live in the spirit of love, as they understand love. And I don't mean romantic love. Uh, I mean uh, unconditional love of human beings. All right? Not sexual love or romantic love, although that's included, but it is by... Um, unconditional love if they live in the spirit of unconditional love then God lives within them and they can be saved but for people who have heard of and have done nothing about studying who Jesus Christ is if they totally reject him then the church teaches that there is no salvation for those people now I don't want to carry that too far because it's not my place, nor even the church's place, to say who is saved and who is condemned. That's God alone. All right. But I have to at least explain what the church teaches. It says observing the boldness of Peter and John and perceiving them to be uneducated ordinary men, they were amazed. The people were amazed and they recognized them as companions of Jesus. And then when they saw the man who had been cured standing there with them they could say nothing in reply. So they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin and conferred with one another saying what are we to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that a remarkable sign was done through them and we cannot deny it but so that it may not be spread any further among the people. Let us give them a stern warning never to speak to anyone in this name again. So they called them back and ordered them not to speak or teach you know, all teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, however, said to them in reply, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than God You be the judges. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. And after threatening them further, they were released, finding no way to punishment on account of the people who were all praising God for what had happened. Now, I don't care to read a lot of this because I hope that you've already read it or will read it. But let's go over to the next page at the top. Here is another one of those situations <clears throat> where they quote, Luke uses a quotation um, from one of the Psalms. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples entertain follow? The kings of the earth uh, took their stand and the princes gathered together against the land and against his anointed. Now, that taken out of context would probably not be meaningful to anybody. All right. So, it just so happens that in a handout that I gave you, if you take this handout, this quotation comes from Psalm number 2. And the psalm is taken and written right out of the Bible at the top. But if you go down into the explanation, Luke, or the writer of this book, has tried to explain how this Psalm 22 applies to what Peter is saying. And so what I've done here is I've translated it because much of the translations have eliminated, when we get it into English, have eliminated the Jewish understanding of some of these psalms. All right. And so down below is what they call the Pesher translation. Pesher meaning Jewish interpretation according to their cultural meaning. Alright? So, if it was a Jewish person hearing Peter talk, you know, 2,000 years ago, and his mind was truly open to the Holy Spirit, he would hear that psalm in this way. Why did the Romans rage and the people of Israel utter folly? the Herods and the Pilots of the earth rise up and the princes conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. Alright, now if you think about it, the Jewish people themselves are the ones who were instrumental in crucifying Christ. If you've seen any of these movies, particularly The Passion of the Christ, you will see how they conspired. that is, the Jewish temple rulers conspired to kill him. It says, and the princes conspired, the princes meaning the temple rulers, against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their fetters and cast their bonds off from us. All right, because they were not obeying God, they were fulfilling their own uh, dreams and and, uh, expectations says he who is enthroned in heaven, that is God the Father, laughs. The Lord derides them because of their folly. Then in anger he speaks to them. He terrifies them in his wrath. I myself has set up my king. Well when he says set up my king, the first king of course that he set was David. Now he has withdrawn the first covenant and he has now set up Jesus as his king on Zion my holy mountain I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes says I David first then Jesus will proclaim the decree of the Lord the Lord said to me you are my son this day I have begotten you now where do we hear that in the past at, they, at Jesus' baptism. Yes. Yeah. The Father speaks that to the crowd referencing his son, Jesus. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for an inheritance. And the ends of the earth were your possessions. This is pretty much the same as the uh, above scripture. But down at the bottom it says, And now, O kings, give heed Take warning, you rulers, or Sanhedrin, of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice before him with trembling. Pay homage to him, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his anger blazes suddenly. Happy are all who take refuge in him. And that's a reference uh, to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, When he talks about the persecutions that are to come, that they are to flee uh, and take refuge in other locations, okay. Of course, which they did. The reason I want to bring that up and talk about that is because this is the beginning in the minds and the hearts of the people of the separation of. Jewish, uh, Christianity from Judaism. It would came little by little, not all at one time, alright, but between the time of Christ's ascension and the destruction of the temple, we went from where they were all united, the new Christians trying to be good Jewish people and observing both Christianity from the teachings of Jesus and the Jewish people at the same time. Gradually, over that 40 years, the wedge between exclusion and inclusion created a divide. And by the year 70 AD, there was a, a complete separation which we will see as we go about but I wanted to bring this out it's a little confusing I agree because the wording is a little strange to us but nevertheless it is sort of the beginning of you might say the separation I can't say the beginning of the end because really uh, it's not ended any questions so far Let's go over to page 30. Life in the Christian Community. The community of believers was of one heart and mind, and no one claimed uh, any of his possessions as, as his own. But they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great favor was accorded them all great favor, meaning they worked signs and wonders, There was no needy person among them. For those who owned property or houses would sell them, and bring the proceeds of the sale, and put them at the feet of the apostles. And they were distributed to each according to need. Now here's the story of this uh, (coughs) Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to read it. I hope that you've already done it. A lot of people say, well, see, that's pretty much, that's pretty uh, dangerous, isn't it? A, a serious thing where uh, they were both uh, condemned, you might say, and uh, struck dead because of their deception. In other words, they sold their house uh, and brought only part of the money, didn't give it all." to Peter and John and it makes it makes the whole well did you get that feeling that this just wasn't right yeah okay yeah we we are thinking about it in modern day uh, yeah ways of. but here is here is a comparison we all know the story of Adam and Eve and how they were condemned for eating the apple off the tree. You might say, well, it was that so serious that they were expelled from Eden and they were made. Look what <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look what happened. You're right. Uh, just for eating an apple. You got to go back and look at it in a different way. It wasn't the apple. It was that they disobeyed a direct Directive from God Himself. And so it isn't what they did, or at least the earthly um, way of looking at it. It was the mind and the heart type of thing. They uh, did something that was directly against a command of God. Here, we have a similar type of thing. They were never required to bring all of their money. It is the deception with which they did it. First, they presented Peter and John with what they said were the proceeds. But when asked if this was all, they said, oh, yep, yep, this is all. But it wasn't. So it was the deception. That's what is being made a distinction here. It is not the bunny itself. It was not the fact that they were not required to do this. They did it voluntarily out of love. But it was the deception with which it was done. And that's true of all sin. Sin is not so much in the action but in the mind and heart with which it was done. Remember, sin, like love, has degrees of significance. And our love can be wholehearted, unconditional, or it can be skimpy and self-serving. Our sin is the same way. We have to be extremely careful because sin is more in the mind and the heart rather than in the action. I want to skip over some of these trials uh, because there were many. But as you read on, you can see how the opposition that is, the persecution that is coming, is beginning to develop in the minds and the hearts of the temple rulers, all right? Remember, there were no other major rulers within Israel at this particular time, all right? They were, the temple, the high priest was the chief, uh, makamak, pardon the expression, uh, of authority Herod was only a go between the Romans and the people and had very little power at this time Pilate was really the power and uh, the he worked through the high priest and the temple rulers that is the Pharisees, the Sadducees uh, that made up the majority of the Sanhedrin so when you read these you can begin to see how the uh, animosity is building and gradually as the doors of Christianity began to open up further and further allowing Gentiles to come in uh, and the first Gentiles that were allowed to come in to Christianity with open arms when they were still trying to be good Jewish people then the Gentiles would come in to the temple which was a big no-no to those people uh, who were hanging on to the Jewish faith um, and it created a lot of animosity and and problems uh, between the old Jewish people and the converted Jewish people. Okay. Chapter 6 begins to tell us now how because of the need because of the uh, expansion of Christianity in terms of numbers of people and its spread they needed more help. We don't hear much, well, in fact, we hear almost nothing about the other apostles. And that isn't because they weren't busy preaching and teaching in the area. But gradually, those apostles began to move out into other territories to spread the good news. All right. And if you read the, some of the stories, for example, uh, Pope Benedict has written a book called The Apostles. And the first four or five chapters uh, center on Peter, James, and John, and Paul. Well, when it gets to the other apostles, there isn't much to talk about because there's very little written about them. But we do have some, for example, James the Less, who went off to Spain, and uh, we have uh, the Great Shrine in Compostello, uh, dedicated to St. James. And we have other shrines throughout the Mideast, as far over as India, dedicated to many of the Apostles. But this book centers around uh, Peter and John in the beginning, and then after chapter 9, almost exclusively to Paul. With a few exceptions, like in chapter 15. Okay. Now, it says here at that time the number of disciples continued to grow. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we talked about Hellenists. Anybody have a problem with who the Hellenists are? The Greek Jews. Alright? Greek Jews, primarily coming from the north. Right? Those people surrounding Israel were not Hellenists. It was the people further north, like in Galilee, uh, and those stretching uh, north of Samaria. Those were the Hellenistic Jews. All right? They were much more liberal, they were much more outgoing, uh, much more accepting of new ideas, uh, more interested in education, and they treated their women a lot differently uh, than the strict uh, Orthodox Jews surrounding Jerusalem. Okay. So the twelve called together the community of the disciples and said, it is not right for us to neglect the word of God to serve at table." Brothers, select from among you seven reputable men. Seven, again, okay? Filled with spirit and wisdom, whom we shall appoint to this task, whereas we shall uh, devote ourselves, and that is the apostles, will devote themselves uh, to the preaching and teaching, uh, whereas the deacons will uh, do the lesser important uh, work of serving and that is pretty much the same level that we have priests and deacons today. They proposed or was accepted to the whole community, and so they chose Stephen, a man filled with faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procorius, Nucano, uh, Timon, some of these names I can't pronounce, and Nicholas of Antioch a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. The word of God continued to spread and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly. Even a large group of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about Stephen as we go on. And Philip. Philip will be in the story of Philip and the uh, Ethiopian eunuch later on. This is not Philip the Apostle. There was an apostle by the name of Philip. This is a separate Philip. And the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, um, that is the deacon Philip. This whole story of of Stephen is is very interesting and important, and I think we should spend uh, the remaining time on it. It says, Now Stephen, filled with grace and power, was working great wonders and signs among the people. Certain members of the so-called synagogue of freedmen, (coughs) Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and people from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and debated with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. When they they instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, accosted him, seized him, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They presented false witnesses who testified. This man never stops saying things against uh, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him claim that this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All those who sat in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You can see how the Holy Spirit is working through, Moses, through Stephen here to get the word out, even to the Sanhedrin. And so, this whole chapter 7 is Stephen's discourse. And what it is is kind of a summary. <coughs> Excuse me. What it is is sort of a summary of uh, Christ's teachings in general and its intent. I'm going to read just portions of it uh, so we can get an idea here. Then the high priest asked, Is this so? And Stephen replied, My brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he had settled in Haran. And said to him. Go forth from your land. And from your kinsfolk. To the land I will show you. So he went forth. From the land of the Chaldeans. And settled in Haran. And from there. After his father died. He made him migrate. To this land. Where you now dwell. What Stephen is doing. And what actually Luke is doing. Through the mouth of Stephen. Is sort of re-, uh, sort of capitalizing, you might say, the whole idea of the Jewish nation and why they were established by God, beginning with Abraham, uh, and for their purpose. right, So you gotta kind of keep that in mind as we read further. And settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, he might, made him migrate to this land where you now dwell. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But he did promise to give it to him and his descendants as a possession. That is in essence a reference to the first covenant. Okay. He's talking about Abraham being promised three things. In a more formal way. Descendants. Land. And God's protection. God's protection included. The whole idea of salvation. Except that it was not spelled out. In that way. And God spoke thus. His descendants shall be aliens. In land not their own. Where they shall be enslaved. And oppressed for 400 years. He's talking about the slavery of the Jewish people in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the the nation they serve, Egypt. God said, and after they will come out and worship me in this place, the promised land. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Well, that's not so much a covenant, but that is a symbol of the covenant. All right. So he became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, as Isaac did Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs, his twelve sons. So we're going through this whole idea of the development of the Jewish nation. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions. He granted him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who put him in charge of Egypt and of his entire household. And then a famine and a great affliction struck Egypt and Canaan. And our ancestors could find no food. And that is the reason, and if you kind of underline that section there, that is the reason that the Jewish people migrated to Egypt in the first place. But that was part of God's plan. It says, then a famine and a great affliction struck all Egypt and Canaan. Canaan is the original name for Israel. Or Palestine. And our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there a first time. The second time, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. This is the whole uh, story of the recognition of of, uh, Jacob and his 12 sons, including Joseph and Benjamin, the last two in Egypt. And it's all detailed in the book. Of Genesis, the last part of the book of Genesis. And then Joseph sent his father Jacob, inviting him and his whole clan, 75 persons, and Jacob went down to Egypt and he and his ancestors died and were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor at Shechem, which is in Palestine. Meaning that after they finally came out of Egypt, uh, the bones of Jacob and his 12 sons were brought back and buried in Palestine at Shechem. When the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise, fulfillment of the promise, remember, that's what we call the New Testament, but there were beginnings of it even in the Old Testament. That God pledged to Abraham. The people had increased and became very numerous in Egypt until uh, another king who knew nothing of Joseph came to power in Egypt. He dealt shrewdly with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to expose their, uh, expose their infants that they might not survive. And that's the whole idea of the slaughtering of the firstborn at the time of Moses. okay. At this time Moses was born. And he was extremely beautiful. For three months he was nursed by his father's, uh In his father's house. But when he was exposed. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated at the wisdom of the Egyptians. And was powerful in his words. Uh, I think we're going to. Uh, be lost here if we just continue to read this. I'd like you to read it uh, in your own way. But let's go over to the next page. Mm-hmm. We're still continuing um, Stephen's speech. Okay. And what he's doing of course is re. re-, re- reiterating the whole history of Judaism up to this point. He's talking about the golden calf after their release and so forth and beginning at the top of page 40 he said uh, it is written in the book of the prophet did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the desert, O oh house of Egypt, no, you took up the tent of Moloch. Oh, Moloch was one of the pagan kings and, and uh, gods. And the star of your god, Rathan. The images that you made to worship. So I shall take you into exile beyond Babylon. Uh, our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the desert just as the one who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Now, this is in reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the desert, just as the one who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had set up. Remember, God had instructed Moses to develop a very special kind of tent which was to be used as a place of worship. And the Ark of the Covenant came a little later and was placed in that tent and it was then carried around for 40 years until they came into the Promised Land. Our ancestors who inherited it brought it with Joshua and they disposed the nations that God drove out from the promised land before our ancestors, up to the time of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But Solomon built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. This is in reference to what I was saying earlier, that they tried to box up God into uh, this Ark of the Covenant or into the Holy of Holies and think that that's the only place that God existed. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me? In other words, how could you possibly contain me in the walks. If you go down to the uh, commentary here, about two thirds of the way down, the third line it says, the speech makes the case that the move beyond the divinely mandated portable tent of testimony, the desert tabernacle the place of the divine presence to the fixed and solid temple built by Solomon was misunderstood by some in Israel, by most in Israel, I would say, as a way of magically confining God to that space, that misunderstanding was a step in the direction of idolatry and an attempt to box God in, who does not dwell in houses made by human hands. The conclusion of Stephen's speech, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always oppose the Holy Spirit. You are just like your ancestors. Boy, that would get you friends, wouldn't it? Yeah. Which of the prophets did you, did your ancestors not persecute? They put to death those who foretold the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law as transmitted by angels, but you did not observe it. When they had heard this, they were infuriated, and they ground their teeth at him. But But he, that is, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up intently to heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed upon him together. They threw him out of the city, and began to stone him. The witnesses laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And then he fell to his knees. And cried out in a loud voice. Lord. Do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this. He fell asleep. And died. Of course. Two things. They threw him out of the city. And began to stone him. Why would Luke put that little tidbit of information in there? Well, yes, that's true, but it was Jewish culture that not only human beings were executed outside, but even animals slaughtered for the Holocaust or offerings were slaughtered outside the walls, primarily the animals that were used in the Passover meal. Were slaughtered outside the walls so that the blood would not, uh, the blood would yeah would not get on on the city. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that's why this little tidbit is in there. It was part of the Jewish culture. Okay. You can add insult to injury, In a way, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, Lord, do not uh, hold this against him is the same words, or almost the same words that Jesus uses at the cross. But you're right. Jesus was executed outside the walls of Jerusalem for the same reason, that any sacrifice sacrificial animal or criminal could not be executed inside the walls. They had to be executed executed outside the walls. And of course, Jesus was considered a criminal to the uh, high priest and the ruler, temple rulers at that time. Okay. So you begin to see how the animosity between the old temple rulers, not necessarily the Jewish people, because the majority of the Jewish people did not really know which way to go, but they were attracted to Jesus because of his goodness and his preaching and teaching. Remember, the poor people, someone asked me one time, why is there such an emphasis in the Bible on uh, protecting and helping and administering and giving to the poor? because in this culture, the poor were totally disregarded and shunned because they were considered that their poverty came from their sinfulness. And therefore, they were uh, pushed aside and neglected for this misunderstanding and that was true for anybody that had uh, a severe illness or deformity of, of some kind. Uh, they were always neglected. And that was such a misunderstanding of hardships and so forth. And so the whole idea of being inclusive meant that you brought those people in. Well, when the Christians, you know, the apostles started bringing some of these people in to general uh, community and particularly into the uh, temple. Uh, that was a big no-no and created a lot of problems. Alright? But that's where we begin to see this wedge dig deeper and deeper. Uh, let's end with a prayer. Name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time to explore scripture and to better understand what we want really to do is the grace and the strength to strengthen our own beliefs, to strengthen our own devotion to you, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit. And therefore help us use what we've learned To strengthen our own religion. And to get it straight. To lose those things that are not correct. Things that we may have learned as young people but misunderstood as adults. So help us then to strengthen our faith and increase our devotion. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.